Our scripture this morning is from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. And as we prepare to hear God's word, let's pray together. Lord, we intend now to pay attention to the glory of your word. So may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This was the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Ever spend endless time on the phone trying to track down the right person to talk with? I know you have. You call with what seems to be, for you, a fairly straightforward question. You explain the situation to the first person, and then they put you on hold to transfer you to another person. Feels like you're just being kind of shuffled around. So here we have Mary, mother of Jesus, big wedding in Cana. Maybe it's a family friend, maybe extended family. And suddenly the wine dries up. It's a major social blunder. The family could be disgraced. So Mary goes to Jesus. They have no more wine. Simple request. But Jesus seems to put her on hold. God's timing isn't always our timing. We might find ourselves in a fix. Doesn't mean God's going to act. We might want God to break through our mess, but God's not at our beck and call. Mary asks, but Jesus replies, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. He means no disrespect. Jesus is making a simple acknowledgement. It's not time. Not God's time to reveal who he is. God's timing is not our timing. We panic. We fear. We have an overwhelming sense of urgency for something to happen. Things can go wrong. We can't wait. We can't sit around. We want something to be done. God, help! If we wanted to wait, we'd go to the DMV. 
But that's not the way we want life. We want instant answers. No lineups. No waiting. We want God on demand. If we're going through some rough times, it'd be nice to have God's instantaneous response. We should be able to aim a prayer in God's direction and get a response. We could call it insta-prayer. Say the right words and presto, God responds. Maybe we're a bit like the character Herod in the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar. The Gospel of Luke tells us that part of Jesus' trial was before Herod. And Luke says this, When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time, He'd been wanting to see him. Herod had heard rumors of Jesus, heard how Jesus had made a name for himself, healing cripples and raising the dead. And with all these rumors floating around, Herod was hoping to see Jesus in action. Jesus on demand. So you're the Christ. You're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. You're all we talk about, the wonder of the year. Prove to me you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. So if you're the Christ, yes, the great Jesus Christ, feed my household with this bread. You can do it on your head. Herod wanted a showing. Wanted Jesus to prove himself. If Jesus were so great, he'd be able to put on a show. I only ask what I'd ask any superstar. What is it that you've got that puts you where you are? I'm waiting. Yes, I'm a captive fan. I'm dying to be shown that you're not just any man. But Jesus does nothing. Jesus refuses to be some kind of a dancing puppet. And so Herod concludes that he's just a joke, nothing but a fraud. God's timing is not our timing. God acts according to His will. Jesus won't be forced by Herod. He won't bend to Mary's wish in His time. That's when He'll reveal. God doesn't act by our beck and call. God may not respond immediately to our need, but Jesus makes clear that God acts in His time. Later in John's story in his gospel, the disciples want Jesus to be better known. They want disciples in other places to see his works. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, they say. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus replies, my time's not yet here. Other times when Jesus was teaching, people were polarized in their opinions. Some believed, some hung on his every word. Others didn't believe. They resisted everything he said. And those who were opposed to Jesus tried to grab him. But the Gospel of John says, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. God's timing is not our timing. There was a time Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, wanted Jesus to come. They were certain that he could do something miraculous for Lazarus. But the Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus heard, he stayed where where he was two more days. And Lazarus died. I mean, certainly the one who called himself the resurrection and the life could have come through for Lazarus. That just shows. God's timing is not our timing. Much as we may want Jesus to act, to show us who he is, sometimes he says, my hour has not yet come. Still, Jesus offers a sign of what's to be. Actually, the Gospel of John 
is a series of signs that acts as clues to let us in on who Jesus is. See, John takes us through the story of Jesus erecting these signposts. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. I remember one Christmas we gave uh, Jesse and Aaron uh, treasure hunt Christmas gifts. Uh, They each opened a small box inside of which was a clue. And the clue was a ditty or a rhyme that held a hint as to where they could find what they were looking for. And off they went. The first clue directed them to their bedroom where they found another clue, another rhyming hint. We were a bit worried. Would they understand? What if it was too difficult for them? We were relieved when they figured out that they had to head off to the basement. And on it went. Clue and off to the kitchen. Another clue out to the garage. And then a final clue directing them to their present. The Gospel of John is that kind of a series of clues, or as he calls them, signs. At first, John is obvious, like in this chapter, in chapter 2. He tells us this is the first sign Jesus did. Then, a couple of chapters later, when Jesus heals a royal official's son, we're told this is the second sign. But then, for the rest of the gospel, John leaves us on our own. His gospel has seven signs, but he leaves it up to our imagination and initiative to discover what most of the signs are. So how are we to determine what a sign is? Well, all the signs point beyond themselves. N.T. Wright tells us that the first chapter helps us understand what the signs are doing. In that first chapter of John's Gospel, we're told about certain men who came to be his followers. Andrew and Simon, his brother, whom whom we know as Peter, they followed to Jesus. Philip also took up with Jesus, and he told his brother, Nathaniel, that they had found the Messiah. Except Nathaniel was skeptical. He didn't think anything good could come out of Nazareth. But when Jesus saw Nathaniel, he called out to him. And Nathaniel was shocked that he knew his name. And when Jesus said he saw him under a fig tree, Nathanael knew there was something special about Jesus. And Jesus replied, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, it's that last line that helps us understand Signs are clues to people who watch with faith. By faith, they would discover times when heaven is opened and the transforming love of God bursts into our world. It'd be like heaven's angels ascending and descending. The signs show us that Jesus is bringing heaven down to earth. Signs of what's to be. He's bringing that transformative power of God to earth. Now, we're tipped off to the sign in chapter 2 by the master of the banquet. He's a kind of head waiter for the wedding reception. Typically, weddings could last to up to a week. To run out of wine halfway through is a major embarrassment. Now, the master of the banquet didn't know about this social gaffe because when the servants brought him a sip of the water become wine... He didn't realize what had happened. He didn't know where it had come from. 
But he did note a very strange set of affairs. He knew something was different. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. And then we get the punchline. Maybe he means it as a joke. Maybe he's thinking the bridegroom is silly to serve better wine when everyone's had too much. But here's what he says. But you have saved the best till now. Now the master of the banquet doesn't realize, but we do. We know. The wine comes by divine provision. God in Christ brought the wine out of water. Jesus provided a superior wine. Jesus brings this transforming power of God to earth. This sign from God is delivered in the head waiter's words, You have saved the best till now. See, God's best gift for Israel wasn't something in the past. God's best gift wasn't Ten Commandments delivered on the top of Mount Sinai. God has done something surprising. God's best gift to Israel and to the world has arrived in Jesus Christ. Jesus brings to a climax God's history with His people. The salvation that God provided earlier to the nation of Israel was a weaker wine. The salvation God provides in Jesus Christ surpasses the grace of the Mosaic Law. God saved the best till now. And Jesus brings all the vintage God has to offer. Again, the first chapter of John's Gospel tells us that it's Jesus who brings the fullness of of grace and truth. John says, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the change Jesus brings. A fuller grace. Grace upon grace. It's the first sign in John's Gospel pointing us towards seeing the newness that Jesus brings. That Jesus brings this amazing change. Signs of what's to be. The clues are there for us to see. Heaven is open. And God's grace is bursting into the world. All to reveal God's glory. Interestingly, not in some over-the-top display of white-hot holiness... No, Jesus shows us God's glory quietly. Jesus acts under the radar to transform water into wine. But John notes the significance. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. The majority of the people at the party didn't notice Most just kept imbibing without paying much attention to the extravagance that had happened. See, that's the thing. We think glory, and we typically think the bright, shining presence of God. Glory is God hiding Moses in the crevice of the rock because face-to-face might fry him to a crisp. Scott Jose notes, even on a human level, when we talk about glory, we generally mean things that are dramatic that raised someone up to such a pinnacle of splendor as to elicit the adoration of everyone else. But look again at chapter 2. Things don't appear so glorious. Despite the extravagance, I mean, Jesus produced about 150 gallons of wine, roughly 800 bottles of wine, and a rather fine wine at that. Still, the crowd of people doesn't notice. 
Nothing too big, too bright, too loud is going on for them. John seems to imply that God's glory is wrapped up in providing wine to folks who likely already had so much to drink already they didn't see the wonder. If you had been at the wedding feast, you would not likely have caught sight of any bright flashes of light. The audience didn't stop and stare at a stupendous display of power. Nobody fell off their seat in amazement. And that seems to be the point. There's no grand pronouncement. Jesus gently guides the servants to fill up the jars and take a sample to the master of the banquet. The tone is all rather subdued. Only Mary and the disciples, and maybe the servants who did what Jesus asked, realized what happened. All kinds of people were in range to catch sight of the wonder Jesus performed, but no one seems to notice. Even the master of the banquet is clueless. And still by Jesus' actions, a quiet glory of God is revealed. John says what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which, his, through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. Maybe they recalled prophecies about the Messiah. See, it was the prophets who talked about the abundance replacing scarcity. Scarcity. It was, it was the prophets who often used two images to speak of the Messianic age. The image of the wedding banquet and the image of the abundance of wine. In Isaiah 62, the prophet speaks about the glory that awaits the people of God. They're not going to be deserted. They won't be desolate. Instead, God would take delight in them. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And then that same image gets carried over into John's revelation. When, we, when he gets a, a behind-the-scenes look at what will be, he describes it like this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The gathering of God's people will be like a huge wedding reception, a wedding supper of the Lamb. And at that supper... There'll be an abundance of wine. The prophet Joel says, In that day the mountains will drip new wine. Amos makes a promise to the people who've been exiled. And he says, The days are coming. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. And Isaiah promises that the renewal God brings will include this abundance. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the the finest of wines. That's the promise of God's kingdom. It's what life in the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. Goodness will flow freely. Abundance, commonplace. Needs, even as basic a need as having wine when the supplies run out. Those kind of needs would be met. The church father Irenaeus said about God's glory, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. 
That's not about self-fulfillment. To be fully alive, to be, is as God intends us to be. What God wants for us, what God desires for us, is that we flourish, that we have joy, that we take delight in His creation, just as God did when God said the creation was good. It breaks God's heart to find life otherwise. When children starve, when people languish in poverty, when life is not as God intends, there is no glory. It means God's desire for humanity isn't happening. One commentator notes, Jesus enacts in the miracle what he later in this gospel says, I am come that they might have life and have it abundantly. See, perhaps what the disciples caught sight of in Cana at that wedding party was the glory of God's provision into their ordinary lives. They saw what the prophets predicted would happen when the Messiah arrived. Jesus showed himself to be the kind of coming king the Magi were looking for. The world was anticipating. He was bringing abundant life to his people. Someone once said that there's a a practice in Puerto Rico called kinging. Latin American Christians take the noun king and make it a verb, kinging. And he notes that Jesus' provision of wine where there was a need is a matter of kinging. Jesus' gift brings joy and laughter to enhance friendships. Latin Americans envision that the kingdom of God is a place that's filled with singing and dancing and feasting. That kinging is the process by which God's goodness turns the water of sadness or anxiety or stress into the wine of new life filled with joy. But kinging, says this author, doesn't stop with you. Kinging is meant to be spread to others as you seek their welfare. Bringing joy, supplying where there is need, considering the plight of the least, the lost, and the last in the community, that's all a matter of kinging, making a change, bringing change from the sadness of what is in a broken world to the glory of God's world. So following the kinging practices of our Latin American brothers and sisters, perhaps we can find the glory of God in our lives. You know, when you get together with other young people to mow and rake and do yard work, you can be sure that God's glory is lurking around. When the Priceless Treasures thrift store makes a newer pair of shoes available to a child without a decent pair, we can be sure that God's glory is peeking through. When you make a visit to Bethany Home or Beth Haven and speak a word of encouragement or spread the hope of the resurrection, we can be sure that God's glory is making an appearance. When you take a Monday night to connect with other boys and girls of our church and community with some good food and simple laughs and fast cars, we can be sure that God's glory is somewhere in the mix. When such things happen in our church or in our community or in our family, then God's glory is nearby. The life of Jesus, His redemption, His healing leads us to a fullness of life, a a life fully alive to all that God created us for. I mean, in this simple abundance of a joy-filled life, God's glory is revealed.
God's glory shows up in ordinary places. We'll see signs of it in school hallways, home kitchens, office workplaces, wedding receptions. Now, ordinarily, we won't be turning six jars of water into vintage wine. That's probably a sign best left to the master. He's the one who opens heaven's door to allow in God's transforming love. What we can do is live in his glory. We can manifest God's glory by taking the ordinary. Maybe a jar of peanut butter to make sandwiches for the homeless. Or maybe our voices to turn them toward communal praise in an adult choir on Sunday mornings. The truth is, we can enlighten the nations with God's glory in hundreds of ordinary ways. Let's pray together. Lord our God, take our ordinary lives and make them signs of your glory. Take what we are, take what we have, take what we say, take what we do, so that they can point others to see that heaven's been opened and that your transforming love, your rich glory, has come here and is near. Help us to see and to know all that you are in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.